This episode is brought to you by Dunnings, your local distributor of quality fuels and lubricants throughout Western Australia. Dunnings Fuel operate their fleet of trucks 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Dunnings keeps the whole state running. Find out more at dunningsfuel.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. One moment can change your entire life. Ashley Dowden learnt that lesson at age 11, when he survived an accident that claimed his mother's life and left his father with one arm. Ashley's childhood was cut short as he stepped up to support his father in running the family sheep station. In the four decades since, he has continued to face his fair share of challenges, but his commitment to the family property has never wavered. In this episode, Ashley shares parts of his journey, and we explore how his deep love of the land he calls home has allowed him to not just persevere through the hard times, but build a life full of joy and love. As a kid, I had probably one of the um, the best environment to grow up in. One of the, I mean, I loved the um, the freedom and the open spaces, and the fact that we always had pets and animals and. um, but um, no, I loved my childhood uh, right through till I was 11 and that was when we had a really bad accident and uh, my mother was killed and my dad lost his arm, his right arm, in a, in a vehicle accident. We um, hit a, uh, an oversized vehicle travelling at night coming the opposite way and it basically tore the whole side off the vehicle. We were in a um, Toyota Land Cruiser ute three of us sitting across the front seat and um yeah it was uh, was not a good time and probably from that time onwards my whole life was was changed the biggest change was was the fact that um my father who up until that part of the stage of his life was a pretty jovial happy easy going easy to get along with um very hard working man a lot of respect for my father in in all sorts of different ways but it changed him, and I guess losing your wife, losing your arm, um, being responsible for two, you know, adolescent children. At, at this stage, we were—I was eleven, my sister was thirteen, and and dad was became a, a sole parent for a while. But uh, it was tough on him. You know, he he was pretty badly knocked around in the car accident, and uh, to recover from that 
and to um you know to lose his wife and his arm in the, in, the, in the one accident it changed him and he became a lot more serious a lot less jovial uh a lot less loving i think he um he really did struggle and he did his best and he is a tough he's a really tough man and um you know from that time on i guess uh we sort of we're still very good friends and we worked together but i sort of felt a bit of a void in emotion from my father and we were loved there was no two ways about that as kids growing up but he just became a very hard a very tough um not cold's not the right word but certainly unemotional kind of man and um i know he he did it hard he really did he really struggled but as for running of the station he came back home and um there was nothing he couldn't do he could still shear a sheep he could still climb a windmill uh, he used to get up with his one army, get up on the heads of windmills and, and, and service, like, you know, check the oils and things like that. It was a bit different putting a windmill head on, but there was nothing he really couldn't do, but things took a lot longer. And I think that frustrated him knowing what he used to be able to do, uh, to what he could do now. And yeah, I guess as, as children, as, as a child growing up, uh, I lost a lot of my childhood and I became probably dad's right hand man to, coin a phrase because uh, I had to take on a lot of responsibility. I remember the first year after it happened, I actually did the mulesing and, um, you know, as as 11 or 12-year-old kid learning how to mule sheep because uh, you need two hands to mules and Dad couldn't do it, uh, rebuilding truck engines and things like that. Dad was quite mechanical and from a very young age I, I took to mecha- you know, uh, vehicle maintenance and mechanics and things like that. I loved it. It was part of something that I was really interested in. But, you know, I remember rebuilding a truck engine and um, putting heads on windmills, so a 12-foot head. I remember doing Joneses at about the age of probably 12 or 13 years of old age. Yeah, up up the top of a 25-foot windmill tower, putting a 12-foot head or building a 12-foot head on a windmill up there with a gin pole and rope. Pretty much by myself, Dad being on the ground and and me being up there, and as a young child, it um it did. I, I took on a lot of responsibility of the running of the station, and I did a lot of jobs that the average, you know, twelve year old probably didn't get the opportunity to do. It's not uncommon to hear stories of bush kids being given responsibility and and you know learning to drive motor cars at a young age and do those sorts of things. But under your circumstances, it sounds like that was really fast-tracked. And also, it was a completely different set of circumstances. So, while other kids learning to do other things, it's, you know, have a go at this. Why don't you try this? You know, it's it's the encouragement and, you know, have a go, maybe try and learn this. It sounds like under your uh, environment, it was it was out of necessity, which I guess adds like a, a – a layer of pressure onto it. It's not a, oh, do you want to have a go at fixing this windmill? That might be fun, something to try. It's we need to get this done and I need your help. Like it's it's different than I suppose other bush kids when they're learning to do things. Yeah, absolutely. There was – I, I felt um, it was my responsibility and from a very young age it was, you know, obviously after the accident it was it was me do it or we have to employ someone and get someone else in to do it. And I remember, 
you know, coming home from boarding school in the school holidays and Dad having this whole list of things that we needed to get done in that two-week period when I was home or or longer over Christmas. But, um, you know, there was there was always a, a list of things that we either needed to clean a well out and I'd have to go down a well to clean out a well, uh, you know, put a windmill head on, put a new tank in, and in those days we were building steel, what they used to call squatters tanks, which was... Um, you know, it was not like just dropping a poly tank there like we do today. It was it was quite a big job, and I, I guess it was a feeling of I want to help Dad. I want to do everything I can to um, to help him out as much as I could. And I never really thought about it too hard. You know, people say, "Oh, you slave labour and child labour and all this sort of stuff," but I always wanted to do it. I was always very much willing to help out as much as I could. I knew Dad was struggling, and um, after what we'd all been through as a family, it was a matter of just digging in and and getting it done. And I never really questioned it at all, and I enjoyed it absolutely. I loved it, and it it built me into the person that I am today. Having to work from such a young age, and I never really even thought about the physical aspect of the work. But we did long hours and hard work and bogging out wells and things like that as a kid. That the average. Um, you know, adult probably would have thought twice about doing, but we did things because that was just how it was done and it needed to be done and you got on and, and did it. So uh, it was not something that I considered to be extraordinary or anything. We just needed to be done and we got in and did it. Was boarding school the time and the place and the space for you to, to be a child because you had to be an adult when you were back home? Probably. I, I didn't really think of it like that either, but um, I, I – did it tough at boarding school for the first few years and, and really all I did was want to be at home and, you know, we learned to drive at a very early age. I mean, I remember my sister and myself probably at five and she might have been seven and I was sitting on the floor with my back against the seat on the floor of the Land Cruiser working the pedals and she was standing on the seat steering and uh, as, as you know, a five-year-old kid, I, I reckon I was probably driving easily well or driving well by myself by the time I was probably eight or nine and um, and knew every road on the station. And I had my own motorbike when I was, I think, my, either my fifth or sixth birthday. And um, we we knew every road. We could do a mill run. Um, either, either Julie, my sister or myself could very easily do a mill run at the age of eight or ten. You know, we knew where everything was. But, um, yeah, I guess boarding school – it was a hard time for me. The fact that the accident happened the year in May of the year before I went away to school and um, when the accident actually happened, I went to um, Murrum Station and, and Bill and Pat Fitzgerald very generously offered to finish off my education because I was homeschooled. Mum was teaching me at the time and um, you know, I, I missed a bit of school but I went to Murrum and um, – and sort of lived over there during the week, and then Dad came and got me. I came home for weekends. Uh, that, that that finished my primary school off on on School of the Air. I was on School of the Air anyway. But uh, they had a daughter, Kelly Fitzgerald, who was the same age as and in the same class as me. So they very very generously offered to um, to finish my school off for that year. And it was the following year that I went to boarding school, and obviously um, it's still pretty raw. And to go away and start boarding in that situation, I, I, I did it pretty tough those first couple of years away at boarding. I never really liked school. I was one of those kids that probably would have been better off 
doing something else than than finishing, but I stayed and, and finished year twelve and graduated. School wasn't a wasn't a place that um that I was comfortable. The boarding side of things I enjoyed. I enjoyed the mateship, the camaraderie, the friends that you, you make in the boarding house. Um was pretty rough and tumble and you you got tough or or died basically withered wilted away in, in, in a boarding house in those days. But um that was how it was and everyone was in the same boat and, and you respected your seniors and if someone was a year older than you and they walked into the common room and you were sitting in a chair and they wanted that chair you got out and shifted. That's just how it was. And uh, you did learn to respect people that were older than you, um, not necessarily like them, but you <laughs> certainly made way for them, let's put it that way. And, and boarding school was, was a pretty tough environment, but I enjoyed it and I thrived in, in the boarding side of things, uh, less so academically. But like I said, I I passed all my subjects. With the the one focus of, of coming home, that was all I ever really wanted to do and I knew um, that I had a, I guess, a profession. I knew I didn't want to be a school teacher or an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or anything else. I just wanted to go home to the station. That was that was where I was was aligned to be and um, that was all I ever wanted to do. So when I finished year 12, uh, the plan was that I was coming home and Dad said, no, you're not. And he said, no, you can uh, you can go and travel for a year or two and see the big wide world, do whatever you want, but you're not coming home. He said, I want you to go and experience how other people live and see where, how other people do it because once you come home, that's it. You're going to be home for a long, long time. And I was, at the time, probably not so grateful for it, but as time went by, I really enjoyed that couple of years I spent travelling and I went all around Australia. And so after this couple of years working your way around Australia, you came home. You mentioned just before that you, if it was up to you, you would have come home straight after school. I'm intrigued and, I, I, to be honest, a little perplexed as to how you came to feel that way. Obviously, you know, many people growing up on the land have a connection to it and a love for it, but your time, your childhood there, you know, you have this tragic accident and and then you have to step up and you have this level of responsibility and, as you said, your childhood changed and I suppose my brain just goes down the path of thinking, well, if you've had to do, you know, work and hard work in those years, by the time you've got a chance to get out, like wouldn't you just be like, cool, well, I've done like almost a lifetime's of work by the time I finish school, I'm I'm going to go do something else. I'm I don't want to do this. But you you had a very different response. You know, it seemed to, if anything, just embed and and you know really ingrain your love for this this world. Yeah, absolutely. It was something that I really didn't consider. I was always going to come home, and um, I knew that there was, and it was a tough business. And in in as much as that um, times had been. Certainly tough with you know the, the seasons and a, and a myriad of factors that it was it was never ever that I remember a very lucrative industry but it was something that we 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 did well we thought being here and and Chala Station for um you know well over a hundred years well back then it was probably about a hundred years we sort of prided ourselves on our on our business here and how we manage livestock and how we manage the land and it was. Um, you know, we thought a business that we could make a good living out of and we prided ourselves on how we did that and I wanted to be part of that. I guess having done so much so young could have worked against it, uh, you know, against me and, and 
sort of made me query or question as to whether and why I should come home. But I think it just instilled in me that I knew how to do it. And even as a um, 19-year-old or 20-year-old when I when I came home after a couple of years travelling, uh, I knew what to expect. I knew exactly what I was getting into and I just – the love of the land, I guess, was, was one thing and, and the enjoyment of working with animals and livestock was something that I just wanted to do. Did you feel any – obligation or pressure to come home especially I mean there's a few different things playing into this it's something you say in any circumstance that's a a, I suppose traditionally an expectation of farm kids or station kids you know come home take over the family place you've also got your dad that was injured in the accident and and permanently disabled afterwards you know you said he, he lost an arm and obviously still was, you know, limited in, in what he could do and that's why you'd had to step up earlier. And also, as as you just mentioned, your family, the Dowdens have been on this patch of land since 1888 um, and in the region a little bit longer. So there's a lot playing into that there. Did that play into it? Yeah, pressure. pressure. Although I, I just clarify one thing that Dad never considered himself as um, having a disability and he would never, ever consider himself to have a disability you know, and he, he used to say, people look at me and they go, oh, the poor bugger's only got one arm. But he said, you know, he'd say, I, I prefer they look at me and they say, gee, the poor bugger's lost an arm. You know, he was he was normal for most of his life. <laughs> <laughs> he but, probably um, could do more with one arm than most people do with two. Absolutely. And he, he never, ever considered himself. In fact, you know, the, the, the fact that he was entitled to a, um, in the later years, an Acrod sticker on his car, he refused to use it and park in the disabled parking, even though he was entitled to it. But... No, um, the, the pressure was certainly um, there. I felt it. I felt the pressure to come home. I felt the obligation to the family, to the business and to Dad. Dad always said to me, if you don't want to come home, don't come home. You go and be a professional golfer or an accountant or a lawyer or whatever you want to do. Do not feel that you need – you do not feel obligated to return home to the business. And he told me that time and time again. But in his, in my heart, I knew that he wanted me to come home. And in my heart, I knew that my grandfather would have wanted me to do this and my great grandfather and my great great grandfather because, you know, Chulla was the Dowden's station. You know, we took it up from Virgin Bush and, um, it was, it's, you know, we were one of the very first people in the area and, uh, it was a bit of history. So definitely I felt the pressure to come home, although indirectly it was never, ever applied to me. It, it certainly um, it was an obligation that I felt, but I wanted to do it too. It was not like I, I came home under sufferance. It was something that I always wanted to do. So the pressure was there definitely, but I guess it was it was, um, it was certainly not with reluctance that I came back. I, I really enjoyed um you know, the time that I'd spent here before and as a kid growing up and although we'd had tough times and things had not always been easy, um, very, very good memories. And even after the accident and things like that, I have I have good memories. So, um, yeah, I was no hesitation to come home. So we have to get to the part of the story now where you meet your future wife because everyone loves a good love story. Uh <laughs> <laughs> the look on your face. 
Oh, love okay. story is something I had never actually thought about and oh, never used that. The term. look on your face just then was yeah. priceless. So you, you come home, um, so and I guess we know from speaking to Debbie that you guys met uh, while you were doing your pilot's license. So maybe take us through a bit about what what were your plans when you came home? Were you I guess you didn't get to take over and run the show straight away, but what was your I suppose role on the station? Yeah, well, I was um, obviously chief shit kicker when I came home because that's uh, where all jackaroos start. And I mean, I'd had plenty of experience and and uh, at home already, and and uh, my wage was non-existent. If I wanted to go to town, I took what we call drawings because I, I had become a partner in the business at a very young age. When um, when mum was killed, uh, dad actually mum had a little bit of money put aside in her own account, and dad gave that money to. Julie and myself, um, and we I used my share of mum's money to buy an eighth of the station off my grandfather, actually off, off my auntie, my, my dad's sister. She was a partner in the station, and I bought her share out. Um, she was a silent partner. She had no no part of it, and um, that, that made me a partner in the station. So, therefore, I was entitled to drawings, so I was never paid a wage. I was only ever paid... Uh, if I needed to go to town, I might have got a hundred dollars, or if I went to Perth, I might have got two hundred dollars. But um, obviously, all my costs were covered. I, I, you know, all my vehicle I ran on station fuel, and all my food was covered. So I probably didn't have a lot, um, a lot of need for for money. Sorry, just just a check. Did you become a part station owner at like the age of thirteen? Is that pretty much? Um, I, I can't recall exactly when. But it was about eighteen or nineteen when um, when I bought my my auntie's share, my auntie's eighth, one eighth of the station. Yep, and my grandfather in later years, um, well, probably not long after, because my grandfather was still a partner in the business with my father, and and I proceeded to to offer to buy my grandfather's share out, um, which he very generously gave to me. Uh, and then I, I, I sort of, because I didn't, um, didn't have any regular wage, I, um, I worked off property a lot to, um, to try and buy, um, you know, my father out. So I, I worked off property as, you know, in times when it was quiet enough here and dad could look after things by himself and we we're only doing windmills. I went, you know, next door and helped muster sheep and muster goats and help with shearings and things like that. And, um, and with that money, uh, I, basically put myself through my pilot's licence because I could see as a way of the future, aerial mustering was a lot more efficient time-wise and staff was becoming a problem even back then, you know, 30-odd years ago. Um, getting staff was difficult. Uh, we had a lot of Aboriginal um, musterers or stockmen on the place that we used to use and they were getting harder to find, you know, good guys with any experience and, um, you know, the actual days of, of jackaroos was only really just starting. I mean, it was, it was mostly Aboriginal stockmen. But um, I thought aerial mustering, I'd, I'd been up at Wandergy and that was the first place I encountered aerial mustering when my very first job when I started travelling and, and other people had began to use it through the district and I thought that that was definitely the way of the future. So I was keen to get my pilot's licence and, and get a plane. Uh, Dad was... 
probably less enthusiastic, let's put it that way, but it certainly didn't discourage me. Um, anyway, I funded myself through my pilot's licence. I went away and did my private licence and I was away, I think, for, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks, got my private licence, came home, had to go back to work for, um, I don't know, another 12 or 18 months to earn enough money to go back and do my commercial licence. And now on a private licence I could muster here, but I saw the potential of putting a uh, an aircraft into this area and basically running an aerial mustering business um, because there was no one really in this area at all. We had to get guys, uh, Leonora I think was the nearest, or Carnarvon or Kalgoorlie, but there was no commercial mustering business based in this area at all. So I saw that opportunity um, and that's why I went down to do my commercial licence and that is where the love story, as you call it, starts, which is <laughs> where I met Deb. And I guess uh, although I had had met Deb before, um, 18 months earlier, she probably doesn't remember it. It was just a probably a brief meeting, but um, when, when I went down, I did need help. And Deb was at the time teaching in the ground school at the Royal Aero Club in Jandicott. And uh, she was teaching the theory behind flying. Not she wasn't teaching the flying. She was just the a theory instructor. They'd call them, and she taught the aeronautics, the um, meteorology, the air law. Uh, air law is important, so you're not crashing into each other. You got to know where you can go and when you can go, and at what altitudes and uh, radio communications. She taught that. So there was, and in getting a commercial license, there is a hell of a lot of theory involved, and. Um, as being someone from the bush with a lot of practical hands-on experience and not having uh, blossomed, let's put it that way, academically at school, I was struggling a bit. And um, Deb sort of said, yeah, well, we'll, uh, we'll give you some tutoring and I'll try and help you through. And, of course, um, very unethically, I hooked up with my teacher <laughs> <laughs> who, who happened to be about the same age as I, I was at the time. And, um, yeah, we uh, we became very close and, and I think it was only within the next six months Deb shifted up to the station. I did manage to uh, to get my commercial licence and uh, I'm, a lot of people thought I was very, very dumb because I just had to keep going back and back and back for more tutoring and, you know, even ended up with some fairly late night sessions of tutoring the, the day before my exam to make sure that I had uh, <laughs> swatted enough to uh, to pass the following uh, the day, uh, the exam the following day. So, uh, no, it was, um, it was, I wouldn't say a whirlwind relationship, but, uh, both Deb and I certainly made up our minds fairly early on that we were the right person for each other and um, thought that we could make a go of it, and which we're still together, I don't know, 27, 28 years later. So uh, it obviously was um, was a good decision. So you got yourself a licence and a wife. It's a pretty good deal. <laughs> well, the, the Aero Club didn't miss me. I know that. The, the, uh, the cost of um, the, getting the commercial licence wasn't cheap, but I think – uh, Deb certainly waived some of the private tutoring, especially the um, you know the, the 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 later ones, the private tutoring lessons. So They're probably uh, a bit dirty on you that you stole one of their you know prized instructors. I, they were, and uh, I get reminded of that every now and again that uh, I've stole one of their their best employees. But um, such is life. That's all I can say. <laughs> now, a little birdie has told me 
that you were a, at times, difficult and argumentative student, and I just wanted to give you the chance to respond to that. Absolutely, 100% correct. <laughs> I'd asked Deb, I was like, oh, maybe when we talk about your time teaching, you could, you know, let's have a few stories. And I mean, maybe, you know, maybe if there was a particularly, you know, um, interesting or annoying or frustrating student, she goes, I can think of that straight away. That was Ash. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was. I was. Um, I thought I knew a fair bit about aeroplanes. Obviously, I'd um, been around them for a while, and and uh, even before I started to get my license, I'd I'd done quite a lot of flying with you know in little one fifties and things, mustering planes, and and um, you know with with other pilots, obviously, but had the opportunity to take the controls. So I'd actually done a little bit before I went down to do my private license. Mechanically, engines. Well, I pretty bluntly told Deb that she'd never be able to teach me anything about engines because I knew all that already. In fact, I was like that with most things. But, um, you know, <laughs> she uh, she did her best and got me through the exams and I don't doubt that I was probably one of the most <laughs> difficult students and 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 probably not just at the um, Aero Club doing aviation. I reckon I would have been a difficult student to teach through most parts of life. I'd like to ask you now about the crash of the war market and the reason I bring this up is we've had – so where – well, you, Chala, is in Mount Magnet, which is in the Southern Rangelands in the Murchison region. And the Southern Rangelands historically was pretty much all sheep stations. And over a period of time, there's been a transition in different areas from sheep to cattle. And there's been different factors that influenced people's transitions at different times. And I've had a few people on the podcast – uh, more of that are, are a fair bit further north than you, and their transition from sheep to cattle was really kind of spurred on by the crash of the wool market. And also, when I asked them, you know, oh, were you sad to see the sheep go? They were all, you know, there was no hesitation. They're like, nope, we were we were ready. We were excited to move into cattle and did not want to keep the sheep. It's a very different situation here because Chala. Uh, the the crash of the wool market did not was not the end of the sheep days here, and when that time came, you guys, you know, it wasn't you weren't like oh bye bye sheep see you later. You weren't you know happy to see them go. So uh, first of all, I'd just like to talk hear your uh, perspective and and thoughts and memories on that time of the wool market crash as somebody who I guess came out the other side of it. Certainly tough times, definitely one of the hardest financially that I can recall um, in, in, in sheep and in wool. And we were very much merino people. We did, <clears throat> we prided ourselves on the volume of wool that we produced per head, <clears throat> sometimes not as fine as we would have liked, but certainly the cut per head, uh, we had big frame sheep with a, a lot of loose skin. And this was before soft rolling skins had even been thought about. You, you used to be able to grab one of our sheep halfway down the midside and get a good handful of skin, and that's how we liked. Um, you know, we, we were sourcing rams from uh, off a of Collinsville bloodline but through Cardo, which is one of the daughter studs here in WA. And uh, they were, you know, known for big wrinkly sheep not well loved by shearers in fact the shearers used to hate our sheep because of the size of the and because of the loose skin on them but certainly known for cutting a lot of wool um i guess i love sheep and i and today if i could go back to sheep tomorrow uh, economically 
if I could do that. I mean, the cost of buying sheep back in now is almost prohibitive right now, but I would do it. it it's yeah, sheep are um, are certainly been a passion because we did sheep well. We thought, well, we th- we reckon we did them well. Um, they were very kind to us, and and over the years, we did made a pretty good living out of sheep. When the reserve price or the scheme crashed, or the the price crashed, uh, and and ultimately the reserve price was abolished, um, we probably survived on on mustering goats and working off property. You know, we had trucks or a truck and did a lot of local carting of of wool and sheep. Um, you know, Dad was running that side of things when I first came home. We you know we we were contract carriers as such around the area. Um, when I first came home, well, aerial mustering contracting became the focus. So we were working. That didn't help us a great deal because of the, the crash, but, um, you know, people weren't really mustering sheep. But certainly goats, goats were reasonably good money, and we spent a lot of time mustering goats, um, aerial mustering goats. So the contracting side of things kicked in to a certain extent um, at that time, and we were able to survive. We didn't owe anyone any money. Uh, the families and the property was, you know, we'd been here long enough not to owe any money. We, we The property was well set up. We had reasonably good gear. Um, so we battened down the hatches and dug in and and really tried to manage the, um, the merino flock in such a way that we could get through the next two or three years was the plan when the, when the price crashed. Unfortunately, it did take a bit longer than that, but um, in the meantime, the flock reduction scheme had come along and the federal government had um, had paid it or was paying properties to reduce their numbers uh, of sheep and we were part of that too where we um, we destroyed uh, in hundreds, I don't know, not thousands, but certainly hundreds of sheep were destroyed and we were paid a pittance, but it was certainly you couldn't sell sheep. You might get four dollars a head for the sheep in uh, in Midland at the time, uh, and it's cost you six dollars to freight them down there from here. So you know you're at a loss. So what do you do with your sheep that you, um, yeah, that, that were surplus to requirements if you couldn't sell them? And, and that's when we were lucky that um, the flock reduction scheme came in. Pretty tough times all around. I mean, a, a producer. The last thing anyone wants to do is destroy their own animals, but really that was the only option. Um, and still, you know, look after your country so you didn't build your, your numbers too quickly or if you couldn't sell sheep, they had to go somewhere, and that was a, a big problem. But, um, yeah, we tightened the belts and battened down and dug in for a few years, and, and eventually the um, the stockpile was consumed to an extent that the price of wool started to increase the price of sheep went back up and uh and we made it it wasn't the wool market crash that saw sheep leave chalice station it wasn't until almost 20 years later that that you guys uh destocked of sheep can you talk to me about what led to that the um reserve price scheme we managed to battle through and, and recovered from. And as you say, it was, it was 20 years after that. So we'd recovered and, uh, wool was worth reasonable money again and sheep were worth reasonable money. And, and at the end of the day, um, it wasn't the price of wool or the price of sheep or our ability to sell them 
that became the limiting factor. I mean, the seasonal conditions were always the the big one around here, and the lack of rain, I guess, and I guess over the period, the changing from a a winter dominant rainfall pattern to a summer dominant rainfall. Well, lack of rain generally. We had some pretty tough years where, um, you know, we had well below average years. That changed from, you know, we were around about the 220 mil, just over eight inches annually, annual rainfall, with the majority of that falling over a winter season, and that just changed. It, it basically stopped, and uh, the scattered, isolated thunderstorms that we got in summer just were not producing the same amount of feed as the winter general rains and the wildflowers that we used to get stopped. Yeah, the the change of the, the rainfall pattern um, was was probably the, the biggest thing that was impacting on us. It got to the stage where we'd had uh, a, a run of below average years and, and three in a row particularly bad. You'd just call them drought. You'd call them drought. We don't we don't have droughts in the southern rangelands because every year is tough. So we do drought really well. We do starvation really well in the southern rangelands. We've become acclimatised to, um, you know, every third year not having any rain. So, you know... We, we don't call it a drought here because it's just normal. You, your business is built around knowing that fairly regularly you're going to have seasons where you just don't get rain. So I guess the um, the fact that we'd had probably 10 years of below average with three real tough ones thrown in, uh, we'd, we'd sort of made the decision that we we're going to have to do something if we're going to look after our country, which we were very proactive in doing. We were probably going to have to destock. Now, at the same time, uh, the dogs and the wild dog problem uh, was getting closer and closer and closer. And although at that particular time we had seen minimal impact, there were signs and we were starting to see dogs. There was uh, kangaroos that had been killed or were dead in the um, in the total grazing management yards around watering points and things like that. We were starting to see a lot of evidence that the dogs were here and properties not that far north and east of us had um, significant issues and, and further north and east again, you know, they'd been wiped out and um, had transitioned out of sheep altogether. So the dog problem was was huge That was um, and it was coming and we made the decision that we would sell our small stock or get out of sheep um, before they were all turned into dog poo. That was basically it. I find it very interesting that I suppose your approach to this was very proactive rather than reactive and that you actually destocked of your sheep before there was a massive impact from dogs, like the before they were like really here and you were right in the thick of it. Um, had you, uh, you obviously said you'd heard and you, you knew from people further, you know, where the dogs were at the time, you know, as I suppose if you think about it, yeah, just they're moving kind of across the country, getting closer and closer. You would have obviously heard from other people their experiences. Did you ever travel out to other properties and see what they were doing, or, or was there a small enough number of dogs here that you you knew what a dog could do to a sheep? We were right in the middle of it because we were running an aerial mustering business at the time, and um, I was mustering out in the goldfields, you know, east of Kalgoorlie and and well and truly north of Megathara, you know, places like Belilly and that up there that were um you know, right on the coalface, let's put it that way, of of the dog problem. So in my role as a aerial mustering pilot, I was seeing players mustering their sheep for the last time and selling everything. And 
that experience was was pretty heartbreaking and I know our business was was going to suffer and, and the aerial mustering side of things was going really strong because there were a lot of people mustering to get out and, you know, focusing on trying to get as many sheep as they could together to sell. So we, we were sort of um, experiencing it as it was happening and that certainly assisted us in making the decision, but well, the, the, the decision to get out of sheep. But there were a lot of people that didn't, and it was heartbreaking to watch, you know, neighbours and other stations around the place, you know, shear 10,000 sheep. The following year, shear 6,000 sheep. The following year, shear 2,000 sheep and not having sold any. And it basically gone from, you know, 10,000 sheep to nothing or to 300 or 500 over a three- or four-year period and not having sold any sheep and, you know, just pulling their hair out and going, what are we doing, what are we doing, you know, how, how we, we need to stop this, but how do we do it? And, um, you know, baiting and trapping and, and trying to engage doggers and it was too late. It, it was really the wave, a huge wave of dogs that rolled in as people further north got out of small stock. The, the food source was reduced and with dog numbers as high as they were, the dogs had to keep following the areas where there was still small stock. And as a, you know, a last standing station that was trying to control the dogs with no one else around you running small stock, every dog in the region was going to be on your property. And it just exacerbated the problem in as much as that it, it exponentially, um, quickened the demise. You, you just had every dog eating your sheep and instead of taking three years to eat them all, they did it in 12 months. And as, as less producers in the area had small stock, um, the problem to those that did have small stock became greater and greater and greater. And, and I was aware of that and I didn't, as I said before, I didn't want to see all our sheep eaten. That was the last thing in an animal welfare situation and, and a, um economic situation. We just couldn't afford to have that happen. So we sold basically what we had um, before we had really any significant impact. The economic impact is certainly a huge thing uh, when considering, you know, what I suppose for everyone they were considering what they were going to do going forward. I want to ask you though about the, I suppose, the emotional toll that takes on you as well. Cause yes, you know, these animals are your business and, you know, if the business isn't viable, that's going to yeah, be a big contributing factor to your decision. In this industry though, especially when you've spent your entire life in it, the circle of life and, you know, life and death is nothing new and you're, you're exposed to that from a very young age. But I imagine this, you know, it's nothing new to see an animal injured, sick, dying, you know, you've seen it your whole life, but I imagine that this is a, is different though. The emotional, psychological impact was was huge. It was significant in as much as that some people just shut down in on themselves, closed up the doors. You never saw them. They never went anywhere. No one had any money. Um, it, it, it was impacted on all angles and um, the, the people that did – Managed to keep their head above water and 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 maybe financially eke out a living through selling a few goats and and the dogs impacted on the goats too. Don't worry about that. And and the goats were probably um, not that far, maybe two years behind the sheep in disappearing. So if you didn't sell, 
Um, the sheep went first, are obviously easier to catch, and some of the big billies and that could could fight off dogs for a bit longer. But it was only a couple of years later where really all the goats disappeared too, and 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 we went hard. We we sold um, on average about three thousand goats a year, and uh, the two or three years leading up to the dogs really the the big wave getting here, we were selling one year we sold seven thousand goats. Um, you know. On a yearly average of two or three thousand, and that was because they were coming in in front of the wave of dogs. The goats were getting away from the dogs further north, so the goats were moving south in front of the dog front. And uh, yeah, there was probably a three or four year period where our turnoff of goat numbers was incredible, and <laughs> that put a little bit of money in the bank at the time. You didn't realise it was going to end as quickly as it did, but it just um, after that big wave went through and the dogs got here. Within 18 months, two years, there was hardly a goat left in the country. And psychologically, mentally, um, people just really didn't know which way to turn. And it was tough. And you saw people that were tough, resourceful, um, you know, upstanding people turned into, you know, I I wouldn't say sobbing, miserable wrecks, but realistically, uh, a lot of them were. What about the the extra layer of, you know, you, you've made the decision to, to to get out of sheep because you can see that, you know, it's from a business perspective and an animal welfare perspective, it's it's not looking good. You also are at this stage the fifth generation of of your family who's at the helm of the station. You've got over. A, at that stage, almost, or just over about, well, if it was 2008 when the last one left, that's what 120 years of running sheep on the property. I'm sure that also played into something, into that as well and, and put a impact of the psychological impact of the, yeah. Yeah. It was what we did. It was what we knew. Now, Challer had run cattle on and off, um, seasonally, you know, you had, had a run of good years, you'd, you'd run some cattle. And then if it got really dry, we'd sell them and sell, you know, it was not unusual to sell all of them and destock of cattle because Chala and this region is historically not suited to running cattle. It's not grass country, although we do have some and, um, you know, probably getting ahead of ourselves, but, you know, property that we bought later on, Windermar alongside of us. Um, has some reasonable cattle country, but through the region, it's, it's historically really good sheep and merino sheep grazing country. A saltbush, bluebush country is really suited to, to sheep and goats and, and very productive. Uh, not so much for cattle. And, um, the transition for us was something that was not made easily. And, and, um, you know, basically by the time we got out of sheep, dad had retired and, and, uh, that transition had already happened and Deb and I were running the place and, and our decision to go into cattle was one that Dad was, let's put, let's say not a hundred percent supportive of. And he said, well, you do what you do and, um, have a crack, but you know, you won't be able to run enough, uh, to make it a viable enterprise and the contracting side of things at this particular point in time, we were right into earth moving contracting. So running loaders and graders and water trucks and, and things like that, um, some mining contracting work, um, making a reasonable quid out of it, but um, the heart was just not in it. Was I hated it, and I hated every day that I had to pull on a high-vis shirt and go to the mine, and 
mentally that was doing more damage to me than than the drought or the lack of stock and I love my stock and I just had to get back into um to running something so it was it was a decision that was that was we found quite a well, it was an easy decision because I, I couldn't run sheep I couldn't run goats I wanted to do something um with animals and the mining contracting side of things were doing my head in so we're going to go into cattle and that's when the decision um was made that we should buy some cattle and see how they go and see what what we could because Challer had never run cattle without sheep and sheep obviously graze the grasses out first and then fall back on the bushes you know the blue bush saltbush country anyway um, so not having that that uh, primary grazing pressure of the sheep we were a bit uncertain as to how many cattle we could actually run because we'd never run cattle without sheep. So it was a bit of a suck it and see, and and um, I guess over the first twelve months, eighteen months, we came to the conclusion that we probably weren't going to be able to run enough cattle to be a standalone viable cattle enterprise, and that's when we started looking at whether we could afford to buy a neighbouring property. Chala ended up being destocked for about eight years. By the time you you got into cattle. Or, or, you know, got into cattle, you know, 100%. I understand from conversations we've had before we started recording that when you, when the last sheep left Chala, it was with the, I suppose, understanding or plan that it wasn't going to be forever and that, you know, maybe, maybe just a couple of years and then you could bring some sheep back in. Do you think that was important um, to have that kind of a goal rather than say like, they're gone, they're not coming back, take a while, we'll move into cattle, to give you that like bit of hope to work towards, to think, you know, this versus if you'd been like, well, they're going and this is it, they're not coming back. Yeah, absolutely. We we When we destocked, it was about um, getting the dogs under control. It was about we had at the same time um, some irons in the fire about exclusion fencing, you know, whether we're going to make, you know, this big dog fence we were going to build across the top north of us and enclose a heap of stations, and that was going to control the dogs. Unfortunately, that took a long, long time to get off the ground. But it was with the expectation when we sold our sheep that in three or four years we were were going to have the dogs under control and we were going to be able to go back into sheep. And I guess that um, dream evaporated year on year as, you know, we destocked and then the number of dogs just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. Every year you were you know, twice as many as you had the year before and it got to a stage where, um, you know, there was the hope of ever returning to small stock was just gone. It was just never going to happen. I don't have, like, official numbers, but my understanding is that today there's only, like, maybe less than a dozen stations in WA that are running sheep commercially. Um, from from the days where there were hundreds, and and of course, as we said before, it was everyone's transition was was spurred on by different factors. You know, it wasn't all you know just dogs or the wool market crash. Or you know, I'm, there, there've been different things. But uh, about a year ago on this podcast, we had somebody on in South Australia, and they have right through their two stations that are neighbours. So they have a dog fence, so they run cattle outside the dog fence, and they've got sheep and cattle inside. You know that. That is a really um, – there are a lot of sheep stations still in South Australia and that's because of the dog fence. Do you ever – I know it's been 
I mean, let, let's be honest, a bit of a shit fight trying to get that sort of stuff going in WA. Dogpence has been around for yonks, you know, in, I guess, suppose, well, yeah, South Australia, I think it goes through New South Wales a bit. It's up in Queensland. Do you ever kind of look, huh, excuse the pun, over the fence to the other states and just think like, why can you guys have this and we can't? And like, I don't know. I, I feel like it would be really hard to kind of look at the other people that are still able to run sheep in other parts of the country because they've had this fence and these other measures of support and not feel really bitter about it. Yes and no. To an extent, I've been a big proponent of, of dog fencing for a long time and we had um, the old number one rabbit-proof fence which ran north-south. Now, that's on – it's our now our eastern boundary, so – it's maintained now to keep the dogs from the desert moving from the east to the west. And that fence has been there for a long time. Obviously it was built over a hundred, well over a hundred years ago to keep the rabbits out, but it was somewhere in the, I don't know, the fifties or sixties that it was actually decided to keep maintaining that fence and upgrade it to keep the dogs out. So, um, back in 2013, I think was when we first started discussing the potential of of building a cell and um, the Murchison Regional Vermin Cell was hatched in its, you know, the, the actual um, potential of building a fence. And at the time, there was talk of building a railway line from the coast from Geraldton out to one of the mines out this way. And they were probably going to fence that railway line to haul iron ore back into Geraldton Port. And we were going to try and get that mining company to upgrade one side of that railway line to dog-proof standard. Now, that would stop the north to south movement of dogs. And if we could join that fence, the railway line fence, onto the existing number one fence, number one rabbit-proof fence, which is still being maintained for dogs today, um, we would enclose, enclose a cell. And that was, a, you know, something that I personally spent a lot of time and effort trying to get off the ground. Um, we did get some funding and we started to upgrade and, and repair the existing fence and then we got a bit more funding and and started to head uh, westwards from the existing fence and um, it, it basically stalled, I think, back in about 2015. Um, Terry Redman was the uh, Minister for Agriculture at the time and we just couldn't get him to support the project. Now, if that project had to happen then, there would still be sheep everywhere today, but it really took another eight years to get the project back up and running again. And by that time, a huge number of people had gone out of sheep and there was there was not enough people as well as sheep left in the landscape to manage the dog problem. So, But as of today, the, the cell is enclosed. It was finished um, just before Christmas and the actual cleaning out of the wild dogs now within that cell is is the main focus and it will allow landholders within the cell to return to small stock somewhere in the future. We've got to get the dogs that are inside under control and whether we ever eradicate the dogs from within the cell is a different matter, but I believe personally that we'll definitely be able to get the dogs down to a number that is um, manageable to run small stock and that could take three years, could take five years, might take longer. We've Deb and I have come to the conclusion that um, we're probably not going to be around long enough to be able to go back into sheep 
um, especially with the prices. I mean, that could change in the next five years, but with the prices that way they are now, it's almost prohibitive to buy back into sheep. But it would take three to five years to get the dogs down to a manageable number. Then your infrastructure's got to be, um, you know, we, we wouldn't have run sheep for 20 years by then and uh, a lot of our yards, our shearing shed needs replacing, um, you know, uh, infrastructure that we've put in is basically been cattle infrastructure. Uh, we have maintained a lot of our yards and a lot of our um, small stock infrastructure to a certain extent, but fencing is a big issue. You know, we've let a lot, let a lot of the sheep fences go because you just don't need them for running cattle. So there'd be a huge investment in infrastructure to get back into small stock. Then you'd have to buy back into small stock and you'd never buy enough to be viable straight up. So you'd have to have a three or five year flock rebuild program to get you back on your feet to get viable. So we're looking at 10 years down the track from today that, you know, it may take that long to get sheep back up and running in a viable way. And, um, you know, with what I am now, mid-50s, in 10 years' time, that's probably about when I'm starting to think about winding down. So I don't want to spend the next 10 years busting my guts to get something established that I then walk away from. Um, so our main focus is going to be on the cattle and realistically we've sort of come to the conclusion that we're probably here at Chala never going to to return back to you know to small stock to sheep but that's not saying that other players that are looking longer out than the 10 year plan um, wouldn't actually have a crack because they will be able to do that now with the fence so i, I suppose is it a, a bit of a case of too little too late but also better late than never like it's too late for some people, but like you said, if for the people that are, are kind of in the long game, they're you know better late than never because now there hopefully will be some opportunity down the track for yep. others. Absolutely, yep. Too late for us, but um, certainly the future uh, it will allow people the choice, and that's what it's about. Is if people choose to go back into small stock, they will have that ability. It will impact on the. Um, the prices are hopefully positively. Um, you know, when you when you're selling a station, if if people can say, well, we can, we've got a choice now. We don't have to run cattle. We can run goats or sheep or whatever. In the future, um, you know, it'll be a positive impact on the on the price of properties. I, I'm just going to go off track for just a second here for one question, then we'll get back on. With um, you know, wool isn't as big a fibre today as it was historically in the past. You know, like back in you know the days of the war and you know everything. You know, wool everything was wool. Do you, I wonder, do you think if people, let's say in 20 years, we are able to have a lot more sheep back in this region, do you think it would be wool sheep or do you think maybe you'd be looking more at like your meat sheep? I think it'll be a mix of both, but I see wool being a natural fibre as being the future. I think with the cost of fuel um, and the amount of oil that's required to manufacture synthetic fibres, and with the way of the world today looking for um, cleaner, greener, environmentally friendly products, uh, I see wool as being the future in fibre. And um, I think that there will be a huge demand for wool. Whether or not people choose to go back into wool or just go back into meat sheep in this part of the world will be determined by where their infrastructure is at. So if they've still got a shearing shed that they can use, and they've still got yards that are suitable for handling um, merino sheep, then financially it would be a much better um, option to go back into merinos. 
But if your shearing shed's buggered and all your yards are falling down and you can, you know, you can use portables and trap uh, meat sheep on windmills, you basically manage them like you do goats. Um, people with limited infrastructure will probably not, you know, they, they won't have a choice. They'll have to go back into meat sheep. In saying all of that, the problem we're going to have with merino producers in the future is the sourcing of shearers and the sourcing of labour because they are much um, greater or a higher labour input um, animal and crutching, shearing, mulesing and just general animal husbandry with fly strike and things like that, the um, the inputs into a merino flock are, you know, who knows, triple, quadruple that of um, the inputs into a meat sheep business. Interesting. Thanks for that. That's actually given me a bit to think about. I didn't even really think uh, of the aspect of the wool being – because, you know, I, I know that wool was, you know, massive back in the day and, you know, Australia was built off the back of the sheep and, you know, there was so much money in wool and it was – but, you know, then it all kind of dropped away with um, synthetic fibres. But, yeah, I, I often think, you know, we're always talking about you want clean, green, ethical, you know, animal products, but I, I really – have a focus in on like meat, I guess, dairy, things like that. Never really thought about the fiber side of things. So that, yeah, there may be a second coming or a reprisal of wool. I, I believe yeah. that there will be a, a, you know, rejuvenated wool industry on that, that line of thought. You mentioned just before that you ended up purchasing your neighboring station to make, to, to be able to run cattle viably, run the number of cattle that you needed to, to keep the business going. Tell me about that experience. I, I suppose also from my understanding, you bought the station next door while you were in the period of being destocked. You, I suppose when I think of buying a station and growing and, you know, kind of growing the empire, you think that's like in a boom time, but you actually grew in a time that, I don't know, it, it doesn't, like I, I can see how it makes sense, but it's not the first thing I think of. Yeah, the um, the opportunity arose and we were sort of looking over the fence at what else might be out there to um, to expand our our uh, land mass, I guess, to enable us to run enough cattle to be a viable standalone cattle enterprise. And um, there's not a lot out there, and you know, it didn't have to be next door. Or, you know, was just looking around, and the opportunity arose in as much as that the company that owned Windermurra had. Um, Basically, he'd gone into receivership and then been delisted by the Australian Stock Exchange, so they no longer existed. So the name on the title deeds of the land, um, the company didn't exist, which was a uh, a big problem. And and the bank had the mortgage over over Windermurra. Uh, they had the right to um, become mortgagee in possession, so they could have taken the title deeds. But they didn't because the minute they they became mortgagee in possession, they became responsible for all the outstanding debt. And there was outstanding shire rates, there was outstanding vermin rates, there was outstanding lease rental. There was there was over two hundred thousand dollars of outstanding rates on Windermere, and the bank didn't want to take responsibility for that. So the bank didn't actually take possession, even though they were entitled to as holding the mortgage. So um, it, it was a very very difficult transaction to to be able to buy Windermere, but the whole reason why it became an opportunity was because in 2015, all the leases were going to be renewed. Now, if Windermere uh, at that stage had 
you know, no cattle on it, wasn't being operated as a as a property, no one was claiming ownership. The um the pastoral lands board at that stage were going to return Windermara Station back to unoccupied Crown land, so UCL. And that would have taken it out of the pastoral estate because once it goes back to UCL, it's unlikely ever to return back into the pastoral estate as a, as a station. Um, we didn't want that to happen. We didn't want a big chunk of UCL alongside of us um, breeding, you know, um, declared plants and animals and, you know, obviously wild dogs was a big issue. We didn't want a big chunk of land that was just pouring wild dogs into us. You know, we got 80-odd kilometres of boundary with Windermara and, um, the boundary fence alone would have been something that became contentious then. I mean, makes us 100% responsible for the boundary fence, and the government's not going to not going to fence the the boundary of UCL. So our stock would have been straying, and you know, it, it was a, a a huge problem that we saw that could eventuate. And when I say the opportunity arose, not many people would have pulled on what we pulled on to actually buy Windermara because of the fact that. Or the difficulties, let's say, in in ownership and and title on the on the um, on the lease. So it, the the process was started off by us buying the mortgage off the bank. Uh, then we had to become mortgagee in possession, and the only way we could do that was then to address the outstanding debt, which we squared away. Um, anyway, that we we did it, and it took a long time, but we managed to get uh, the title to Windermara. Um, before 30 June 2015 was when the lease was going to revert back to UCL. So, um, it, it was, it was kind of an opportunity to the rose that, that we took and not reluctantly, but in any way, because we wanted to do it. But just the actual process, it took 18 months, at least 18 months to, um, to work through the process of, of getting the title to Windermara. Anyway, it gave us enough land to, um, to run a, a decent size, herd of cattle and um, and that's basically become our focus now with absolute minimal off-property contracting and just being a, basically 100% a cattle station. Your family has been on this patch of dirt for over 130 years now and you've there's been some incredibly challenging times and devastating times. What is the future looking like? We'll first of all talk about the future of the um, the pastoral industry, and I think right now the future of the pastoral industry is looking as good as it has ever looked. Uh, price of sheep, price of cattle, price of goats, every, everything's phenomenal um, right now. The carbon potential to run um, carbon sequestering projects on pastoral land has been a game changer. You know, uh, injecting money into these areas, uh, getting really good environmental outcomes on places that have, you know, traditionally been flogged a bit hard, um, you know, historically and even in latter years, you know, the, the country has suffered by overstocking, overgrazing. And you can't criticise the forebears too, too much because they didn't know any different. Um, they were doing what they thought was best, and we know now that probably wasn't best. But as long as you change and adapt, and I think the carbon projects um, are going to go a long way to restoring a lot of that country that's that's been you know pushed too hard. It also injects a bit of cash into the business that allows you to reduce your stocking numbers and take even further pressure off. It allows you to... Um, to implement infrastructure 
to manage those animals. So if you're building trap yards, say, you can be a lot more proactive um, or total grazing man- management yards, but you can be proactive. You can you can react a lot quicker in times if you've gone through a summer and it hasn't rained. Uh, you can m- remove stock from areas uh, with, with yards a lot quicker than you can by organising a muster. Um, so the money that's being injected I see as being a real benefit environmentally to the landscape and to those businesses. So I think the future is looking pretty good for the pastoral industry, even in the southern rangelands who's done it, historically done it pretty bloody tough for the last 20 years. The um, the future's rosy. Now, here at Chala, um, I'd, I'd, I'd have to – I'd lie if I said I wasn't disappointed, but there's there's not a lot of enthusiasm from any of our four children – to um, come home to the station, and that really does tear my heart out because it's a um, obviously taken up by the family, and and I'd love to see one of the kids come back and and run the, the business. You know, we're we're talking a, a multi million dollar business that none of our kids seem very enthusiastic to you know to come back to. In all honesty, there's none of our kids are really interested in agriculture at all. Um, my son's still at school, so there's a time, there's a way to go yet. Now, having given up complete hope that, you know, one day he won't see the light and say, yeah, I'd love to come home. But in all honesty, you need to do an apprenticeship. Um, when you come back to the station, you need to spend time understanding what the, the, the land can give you, what you can take from it. Uh, you need to be at one with, with nature and the land to run a successful um, pastoral enterprise these days and and that takes time you need to be able to read the land and understand what it's telling you when it's getting a bit dry or you've been a significant period without rain um, when it's good you need to know what areas you don't load up too quickly even though it looks like you um you should be able to put you know four or five hundred cattle into that area uh not necessarily because it um it can be damaged just as quickly in the good times as it can be in the bad times so it takes a, an amount of time to learn what you can do and, um, you know, I, I would say a five-year apprenticeship is the absolute minimum before you um, before you really understand your land and, you know, in all honesty, it's probably more like 10 and you never, ever stop learning. Even today, every time I go out in the bush, I'll see something different that I hadn't noticed or or whatever. It's, it's a continual learning curve. So, uh, yeah, but the point being that if any of the kids do decide to come home, um, you know, they've, they've probably got a limited time to make that decision, you know, within the next five years. Otherwise, um, you know, if they, they, they got to come home for another five after that and, and work with me and, and learn how grumpy I really am, but to try and, try and give them that, that, um, starting point where they can run a, a good property from. And, um, yeah, let's, let's hope somewhere in the next five years that one of the kids does change their mind. But if not, it is what it is. The, you know, the fact that none of the children are coming home, um, or at this stage are interested in coming home, but let's not give up hope. You do wonder what you've done wrong. And personally, it, um, it really does play on my, my mind and, and your heart as to, um, why none of your kids are interested. Did I not take them out? As little kids enough, did I push them too hard and make them ride motorbikes and make them do things that they didn't want to do? It certainly is a, uh, you know, it's something that I think about just about every day 
when you've got a, a business that is a, a profitable business that's doing well that um, your kids don't seem to be interested in taking over and, and that really is tough mentally on me. Um, probably not so much on Deb, but, you know, this has been my family's home and uh, you do question where you've gone wrong. Why don't my kids want to come home to the station? Because it will be the end of a of an era. You know, we took up the land in the 1880s and, and we're still here today and, and I'm going to be the last one and, and that is doesn't sit all that well with me, but it is what it is. And and we've I've accepted that fact that if none of our kids do choose to come home, that's the way it's going to be. I just want to say thank you for being so candid with that. Often the only side of succession planning we really hear about is when it's it's the opposite. It's a fight over the family farm and and that how that can become so toxic and and rip families apart. And I haven't really heard many people talk about the other side of it. And for you to share, I guess, how that impacts you, I know there'll be other people out there feeling the same way. And I think it's important to to talk about this and have this discussion because as a parent, look at me saying as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I know there's only so much influence you can have over your children. And at the end of the day, you've raised four children who are good humans. They're making a positive contribution to society. Like it's just, you know, their, their interest is not in agriculture, but that's not something, you know, it's, I, I know a lot of station kids that aren't necessarily interested in agriculture. I don't know. I don't know if it's a, a nature versus nurture thing. At the end of the day, what you, I think it's just important for you and for anybody else out there in the same boat, potentially feeling the same way is at the end of the day, your job is to raise, you know, good, independent little people, big people. Uh, and that's what you've done. So I hope you think like, yeah, acknowledge that and, and yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm very proud of all our kids and, um, I would hope that whatever they do, they're happy doing it. And I would encourage them to, to follow their goals and their dreams, really. It comes down to um, what they want to do in their life and not what I think they should be doing. And, and I just would love to give them the opportunity. And if they choose not to take it, then uh, then that's their decision. But it, it does. It, it's, it impacts on me every day I think about it. As we wrap up, looking back on your life so far, and gosh, like we've covered a lot, but there's also a lot we didn't cover. There's, it's been jam packed full, uh, plenty of highs and lows. What would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? Over the years, I think the reason we've been, well, not trying to say successful because you, you can't judge your success against other people, but the reason we're still here and, um, I got a beer in the fridge and at night time and close them back and you know we, we've done reasonably well. I like to consider we have is because hard work never killed anyone. And one of the takeaways is that if you're prepared to get out and do the hard yards, then success will follow. But you need to continue to think outside the square. You need to continue to be proactive in looking for searching out change and what might be better. Change is not always a good thing, but you, you don't know until you have a go and you might try something different that no one believes in and, and find out that um, that is the best way to go. So don't fear change. 
be proactive and seek out alternatives and options and stick at it. If it doesn't work the first time, then try something else and try something else again because eventually you will you will succeed. But never ever be afraid of hard work. And and family in in everything is is very important. That's that's a, without the support of uh, your wives and partners and things like that in in what we do out here, none of us could make this work. So family is is a huge part of what we do in these in these remote places.